Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and get exclusive access to live grief support, podcast stickers, giveaways, and so much more, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Thank you so much for listening. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm talking to Allison L. Miller, who is on an odyssey of love, driving all over the place in a bright pink car with her husband Chuck's cremains in the passenger seat. Also on the show today, I'm talking about how grief needs to exist outside the labels of negative and positive. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Coming Back Today. I am so incredibly glad to be sharing this space with you here. Just a heads up that this month's live hour-long Google Hangout is happening February 25th at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. If you're looking for a heart check-in this month or a space to get your grief questions answered, whether it's book recommendations or how do I navigate an anniversary, XYZ, or if you'd just like to be heard, pledge a dollar a month over on patreon.com slash Shelby for Scythia, and you will instantly unlock the secret posts that contain the link to join me live as well as other listeners of this podcast. And I will see all of you on February 25th. And of course, you can always find that link to pledge in the show notes. I want to get into something today that's really, really common uh, when other people hear our stories of grief. And you're actually going to hear an expounded version of this later in my interview with Allison L. Miller. And essentially what she says in a piece of the interview is that when she called a lot of people to discuss the impending death of her husband, Chuck, a lot of people responded, well, you just have to stay positive. Well, you just have to look on the bright side. Well, at least you have to try, etc., etc. Something bright, something good. Insert happy making emotional requirement here. And I think this is something that happens a lot in grief where as a society, especially in westernized society, we have a tendency to require the people in our lives to look on the bright side because to look on the dark side or the negative side or on the bad side, we're acknowledging or maybe even admitting, telling the reality of, like, there is no hope. This is the end. This is definite. This is for sure. And the response to that societally is, oh, don't be such a pessimist. Why can't you look on the bright side? It might not turn out like that. And there's all these, um, what's the word that's coming to me? There's like rebuttals to reality. And something that Allison picked up on really, really strongly is 
this is not a time to be positive. This is not a time to be negative. This is the time where I need to tell the truth. I need to be in a space of realness and reality. And this is what's happening right now. And something that just needs to happen with grief. This is very much an acknowledgement today, not so much a how-to or a step-by-step. This is just an acknowledgement and even a permission granting that grief is allowed to exist outside of looking positive or looking negative. I think that so much of our culture is really quick to categorize things, to know A, how much they should be worried about something, B, how much they should respond to our worrying about something, and C, kind of as a cushion or a reassurance that, ah, that probably can't happen to me. There's such a pressure to make things positive or make things pretty or make things hopeful or make things stronger when they're really not to make everyone in the situation feel better. But the thing is, it doesn't make us feel better. What it does is makes us as grievers, as the people who are in the process of losing, unheard. What happens is that our truth-telling falls on deaf ears. And that is incredibly devastating for a heart that's already carrying so freaking much. So if you're a non-griever and you're listening to this podcast, if you're not currently grieving or haven't had something in your life catastrophic happening, just kind of take this as your cue today to understand that grief is allowed to exist outside the space of, I need to put this in a box of positive or negative, or I need to encourage people to look on the bright side and stop looking on the dark side. Like, release yourself from these chains of grief must be classified, categorized, divvied up into two ways. And if you are someone who is grieving today and you're feeling an intense amount of pressure to look on the bright side or stop being so negative or just get out of this, you know, space of you're just feeling this pressure of I must put my grief into one of two boxes all the time. Like give yourself permission to take those chains off, to take those categories, to take those labels off of your grief. They don't belong there. Grief is not a labelable experience. If you can say that five times fast, grief is not a labelable experience. It's something that we live. We are just living the reality of it. We are just living the truth of it. And the truth is sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative, but most of the time it's neither. It falls out of this Venn diagram that society tries to categorize grief with, and that's okay. This is your acknowledgement and reminder today that that's okay, that grief falls outside of that. And not even okay is that's the real truth. The truth is grief falls outside of positive and negative. That's it. So that's just something I wanted to share today. And you're going to hear it more uh, in the interview that's coming up. But I do want to say, uh, if you're looking for a space for grief to be real, if you're looking for a place where grief is allowed to be real without people pressuring you to make it more positive than it is, or make it less negative than quote unquote, you're making it, uh, please join us in the Grief Growers Garden. It's the private grief uh, Facebook group that I've set up for listeners of this podcast to share their stories, share their photos, memories, hard days, all that jazz. But it's also a place for all of us to be like, hey, this really sucks today. And for all the rest of us to be like, hey, yeah, that really does suck. I'm here. 
I'm supporting you. I hear you. I see you in this. And it doesn't necessarily make things better, but it gives us space to tell the truth. And a lot of times, really, that's that's all we need in a moment is for somebody to look at us or even witness us digitally online and be like, yeah, that is how it is. And you're like, oh, that's nice that I don't have to be positive or be told not to be negative. Like I just get allowed to exist. It's such a, it's such a comforting place to be. You have so much permission this week, grief growers, for grief to just exist and be what it is. Sometimes it's just like this. Sometimes it just exists. It's not positive, not negative. It's just there. It's the truth of grief. It's grief. Up next, my full-length conversation with Allison L. Miller, who's driving a bright pink car in the name of love. But first, a quick break. One of the most helpful things I've found in my loss, Grief Growers, is a witness to my journey. Beyond feeling that I'm not alone, although that's extremely helpful in the aftermath of loss, I feel like by sharing my story with someone else, I have a sounding board, a guide, and someone who's just a little bit farther ahead on the road than I am. There is camaraderie and small, growing strength and confidence in finding a grief coach who can companion you, walk alongside you, and you're coming back. I want to be the person to hold this space for you on a one-on-one level. If you're looking for more focused attention on your heart, whether you're coping with death, divorce, diagnosis, or something else, please head to shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching to receive more information about the types of grief coaching I offer and to fill out an interest form. That's shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching. I'm here to be your companion, toolbox, and shoulder in grief. You can also find a link in the show notes. Alison L. Miller is a fucking warrior goddess on an odyssey of love in honor and memory of her beloved husband, Chuck D. Her mission since his death on April 21st, 2013 is about sharing Chuck's left behind love with those she meets out on the open road, giving and receiving thousands of hugs. Her mode of transportation is a custom pink Ford Escape towing a pink teardrop trailer that is covered with the names of loved ones sent to her from people around the world and messages of love written by chance-met strangers at opera camps, roadsides, and renaissance fairs. She is literally a traveling tribute to love. Allison is bold and filled with grit, a woman on a mission to show what can happen when you keep your heart open to possibilities, even as you simultaneously carry heartache. She's all about suiting up and showing up in as much pink as possible to let you know that love is the biggest and most powerful force in the universe. Allison, I'm delighted to have you on coming back this week because your story gave me so much joy to read. It was heartbreaking, yes, but it was also joyful because the way that you've chosen to take your grief out into the world is so like rebellious and revolutionary. So I would can't wait to get into your story uh, and also more about the color pink. So if you could please uh, start us off with your lost story this week. All right. Well, uh, 
my husband Chuck and I, we had been living in New Jersey. Uh, he was re- a retired Air Force and then went into civil service. And I was running a uh, nonprofit back there that I'd started for uh, women grieving the death of their moms or mother figures. And we'd been talking for a few years about, you know what? Our dream is just to get get out on the road and just just meander, to wander, to have adventures. And in 09, we decided to leave our jobs and sell everything, our house and most of our belongings, and just go out on the road. And initially, we were what I called state shopping, looking for a place where we could just settle down at some point, you know, get off the East Coast in New Jersey and go further west. And around about the three-month point, uh, Chuck and I kind of looked at each other as we were just kind of driving around. And we realized that we were having such a good time, so why stop? So we kept on driving. And uh, that, so that was in 2009. And in 2011, uh, he got cancer. And we were out in uh, Oregon when we found it. We didn't quite realize what it was at first. We just we didn't know. And so uh, we went back to New Jersey, and he went to Philly. And it ended up being cancer, uh, sarcoma. Uh, cancer of the ulnar, the sheath around the ulnar nerve in his left forearm. And we went through uh, six surgeries to uh, to um, just totally deal, do away with it and then the uh, reconstruction surgeries. And in between every trip, every uh, surgery, every MRI, everything that we had to do in CAT scan, we'd always go right back out on the road again. And he was good. He had a really good... Uh, prospects for the cancer never coming back again. And then in t- late 2012, at around December, he started getting sick again. And it crossed my mind twice. And I asked him, do you think the cancer has come back? And he said, no, absolutely not. It, he, and we thought it was a systemic fungal infection. But in, um, in March of 2013, uh, we woke up one day, we were out in Southern California at a condo we'd rented. And he said, I can't do this anymore. You need to take me to the ER. And I, I mean, we'd only been there a few weeks. I didn't know my way around. He didn't. So I just quickly Googled uh, an ER and it ended up being Eisenhower Medical Center. And I drove him there and they admitted him right away. Uh, he was having trouble breathing. And I know they thought he was probably having a heart attack. And uh, they did CAT scans immediately. And the doctor came and told us when we were still in the ER, he said, there's a huge mass in your lungs. And he didn't say tumor. He didn't say cancer, but I knew right away that's what it was. And I knew, too, that um, this this was it. He, Chuck wasn't going to make it. And they admitted him to the hospital, and he had a week there. I started calling the kids right away, from our, our kids from around the country, to come and be with him because I knew... Um, that was going to be it. And I remember talking to a friend on the phone. And as soon as she answered, I said, I'm going to be a widow. And I didn't know what that meant, really, other than what everybody knows about it. Um, and we had a week, well, about five days in the hospital. And then I found a hospice for him. And that was one of the hardest conversations I've ever had with him because I, I'd worked in hospice. I'd been a bereavement um, support facilitator for for years so i knew all about grief and none of it none of it helped at that moment when i had to say to my husband i think it's time to find hospice and i said if you want to if you want to fight this somehow 
then um, I'll go to bat for you and I'll do everything and, uh, and we'll do it. But I don't think we have time. But I don't want you to think that I want you to die. I just don't think we have time to do anything. And uh, he thought for a moment and then he took my hand and he said, let's call hospice. And uh, so I did. And we found him a hospice nearby and our four kids were there and I um, I just let everybody know, and friends came from back east. Chuck was in AA, and uh, sp- people that he had sponsored came to bring meetings to him and to give him his 25-year coin, and he died three weeks later, and I went with him to be cremated, and I covered him with flowers. I opened the box, and I covered him with flowers, and I pressed the switch to open the door to the uh, crematorium. And a week later, I went back and I got his urn and I set it on the seat of my pet of my car, riding shotgun. And I headed back east to uh, give him full military honors out of McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey. And I knew that I needed that I wanted to stay on the road as he and I had. I honestly also didn't know what else to do. We didn't have a home for me to return to. I also knew that I didn't want to stay in hotels because I thought that is just the saddest, most pathetic thing I could think of with mm. all of the grief, some sad woman sitting in some hotel in the back of beyond, you know, sobbing into napkins. So um, my daughter found a link uh, with teardrop trailers, tab teardrop trailers, and she sent it to me and she said, Ma, check these out. And I went, I was in Connecticut at the time, and I went and I looked at these trailers and uh and I bought one on the spot, and I didn't know a damn thing about trailers. I didn't even think of, oh, I'm going to need a hitch. Like, I knew nothing. And I bought it. And uh, I had already bought a new car when I went to Arizona after Chuck's death. And I had had a man create a shade of pink for me, customize a shade of pink, and paint my car that color. And so I, when I bought my trailer, I gave the guy the can of paint with the formula on it, and I said, everything that's yellow paint it pink to match my car. I knew that grief is very isolating. I didn't know anybody out on the road. I was riddled with anxiety and you know, I devastated at Chuck's death. I mean, all of these things. And I knew if I at least painted everything pink, if I, if I kind of made myself really big out there and noticeable, then I would be held accountable for showing up. And if I started writing about it, maybe people would read what I wrote. And if on one day I missed it, maybe somebody would message me and say, hey, where are you? Because all I wanted to do was drive into the desert and disappear. I could not bear the weight of the grief of Chuck being dead. And I started my odyssey of love, having no clue what I was doing. I never camped. I'd never towed. I didn't know how to travel, you know, with all the planning the way that Chuck had done. He had been a long-range planner in the Air Force, and so he mapped and he routed and made reservations. And I knew not only did my brain not work that way in the best of times, with all of this grief, it certainly wasn't working that way. So I thought, well, how am I going to do this? And then one day early on, it occurred to me, you know, like if I were to ask Chuck that, how am I going to do that? What would he say to you, Allison? And I knew that his response would be, you know what? You don't have to do it the way I've done it. You do it the way it works for you. Mm -hmm. And I started off and I just took 
all of that grief and pain and devastation and confusion and everything, I just packed it all right up with me and I kind of closed my eyes and hitched up my rig and started off. And now it's over five years later. I love so much of this story and thank you for sharing it with us in as much detail as you did because it's heartbreaking, but especially there at the end, there are these moments of self-inquiry, like, what am I going to make of this? Like, if I have to make something of this, which is the decision that all of us are faced with in grief, if I have to make something out of this crap storm, what am I going to make it into? And I want to go back to something that you said earlier about working in the bereavement field and knowing all about grief and yet you weren't prepared because that's something mm -hmm. that I've read in so many grief books of like psychotherapists and hospice workers and all this other stuff. They're like, I didn't realize until it actually happened to me. So what was different from the tools that you were taught or maybe had been using for years and years versus the grief that you actually experienced when Chuck died? Well, I, I had known it all in my heart for many years. You know, I, when you're a, brief, a group facilitator, you work from the heart. And I had first started learning about it. My mom, my brother and my mom, my brother Keith and then my mom both died within six months of each other in 1996. And that started me off in my hospice career. So I learned so much. I was a volunteer for 9-11 up in New York City. I mean, I was a crisis response captain. I knew all of these things and I worked from the heart. And then Chuck died, this relationship that was my most intimate relationship. And suddenly all I knew about it was intellectual and it didn't touch my heart. You know, I could reel off the words and I did work with my kids in, in our um, hospice time talking about anticipatory grief and so I, re I recognized what was going on, but I didn't know how to shift or change anything because I was just in this absolute tsunami. I mean, when Chuck died, it was, it was like atomic bombs, just the, the, the power in the, the world around me just evaporated, disintegrated. And so whatever I knew, it was only in my head because... I couldn't make it work in my heart and from my heart to, to guide me because none of it made sense anymore. It's like, oh, yeah, I know all of that, but so what? Like, what does yeah. that have to do with what I'm actually going through right now? Yeah, I like how you phrase that because I think so much of grief, society or the world or psychology or whatever likes to make it intellectual. Like, give me the steps. Give me the how-to. But we forget mm -hmm. so much that it's a conversation that we're having with our spirits and our heart. And at some point, words aren't enough. And logic and step-by-step -step instructions just can't do the trick. It's, it's just impossible. It's very true. There's, there really is no language for, for any of this. And so, and I, I, that's one of the quotes that I actually remembered from my hospice time uh, and I am not going to be able to tell you who said it, but um, this person who worked in hospice said that there is no language for grief, therefore we must engage the five senses. And I mean, my, everything was numb at the same time as everything was pain. It was just like this mass confusion, a total, and, and, and it's when really um, language came into play, I started almost becoming... 
I, I remembered Chuck's language from the military and I, I started really just using it. And the first word that came to mind was clusterfuck. This is such a clusterfuck. And snafu, situation normal, all fucked up. And it's like those words were, yes, like I don't know what else to say besides it, but I can say, yeah, this is a clusterfuck. And so I've always been kind of, I've loved color and expression and, and mostly it was verbal and in writing that I was able to express myself. But I, I remembered that one quote that we must engage the five senses. And this wasn't even necessarily a, a, an actual thought as it was. I just realized I knew those words. And so I started learning. I don't know. I, I found somebody who taught me how to, mixed, how to make a mixed media art journal. And I started looking at the inside of my trailer. And you know what? I want a picture of Chuck here and a picture of me and Chuck there. And then I want to do this and paint here and I didn't know if you could do any of that inside a trailer, but I thought this is going to be my canvas. And I started creating. And just because I didn't know how to do it didn't stop me because I didn't care. And if something didn't work, then I just did it over again or incorporated it into something more. And so I really started using my five senses. And I realized your brain is so fogged at this point, Allison. You know, they, they call it widow fog or grief fog. So trust your heart. Like, that's all that you can trust anymore anyways. All that I knew anymore after Chuck died was that he left so much love behind for me from the love we had for 24 years. I knew I had that. I knew I could trust it. And that was in my heart. And so I decided, you know what? I'm going to let my heart lead me wherever I need to go, whatever direction I need to go. If I need to stop somewhere, my heart will tell me yes. And if I need to go, it will tell me go. So it was for the first time in my life, truly listening to my heart instinct. And that's still, that's still what I use as my guide. And then I let my heart show me, okay, you want to do this? Go ahead and do it. So what if you muck it up? Then you'll just do it over again. I'm like, who cares if you make a mistake? Like the language that we use in our culture is so limiting and, and it puts periods on everything. Like even making like, well, don't make a mistake and don't make big decisions the first year. Good Lord Almighty. That's when you have to make some of the biggest decisions of your life after yeah. you've been widowed. So, but if you make a mistake, then live with it and just go on to something else, you know? I mean, that's absolutely true. And that's one of the most frustrating things like pieces of false literature that I see about grief is that like, don't make any big decisions. And the second year is always harder than the first. There's all these, there's periods. You're right. There's definites on all this stuff related to grief. I'm like, you don't know, like maybe that was true for you, but it, in my heart and my spirit and my five senses, like that's not how it's rolling out for me. And sometimes, especially in the case of big decisions, like we have no choice, like a decision must be made. Um, I want to, circle back to something that you said to your friend on the phone. I literally wrote this down and put it in quotes next to me. It just says, I'm going to be a widow. And there seemed to be so much, I think I counted the times you said it was four or five in this introduction of, I knew, I knew, I knew, I knew of this just like intuitive, maybe tuned in to your heart even before his death of just like Mm -hmm. this knowing of this is going to happen. Um, Can you talk about maybe 
where that came from and if that sense was something that scared you or was a comfort to you? Because intuition can mean so many things to people. It didn't comfort me. Um, I didn't, it didn't scare me though either, primarily because I, I didn't really know emotionally what the word meant, uh, like the fullness of it. Um, interestingly enough, at the condo where Chuck and I uh, had made reservations for when we were in Southern California, we, were, we went down to the hot tub one evening very early on before he was really, really sick and we didn't even know he was sick. And there was a woman who was there in the hot tub with us. And so we started talking to her and introduced ourselves. And it ended up that she was a widow. She told us that she'd been widowed two months previously. And a friend had loaned her her condo there so that she could just kind of have some time to be by herself if she wanted. So that's the only person we met at that condo, which was interesting, was a woman who had just been widowed. And then just a month later, Chuck was dead and I was a widow. I didn't I didn't know the fullness of that word. I knew Chuck had survived his first cancer. And um, I don't know how I knew so exactly that this was it. Um, the night he was admitted to the hospital, I did go and speak to the admitting nurse who had been nursing for 30 plus years. And I I asked him, well, what do you think, you know, what, you know, what are, what are we looking at here? Because I, I always want to know the bottom line as much as possible. I've always been that way so that I can prepare myself as much as possible. And, and of course he was reluctant to say anything. And I said, look, I've worked in hospice. I've worked with dying people. I've been around death. I'm not afraid. I'm more afraid to not know than I am to know the possibilities. So I said, how long do you think my husband has? And he said, I think given what all of the test results are. He has maybe three weeks and he was actually right on target. Um, I'd known before that though, in the emergency room, I don't know, there was just something I just knew. Like maybe I'm, maybe I was being fatalistic. I don't know, but um, I just knew this was it. And what made it difficult after that was as I was calling people to let them know, friends and family. And I spent so much time on the phone and you know, I'd step outside the ER room because for some reason I didn't want to talk to about this in front of Chuck. And people would say, oh, you have to stay positive, you know, and all this. Stuff. And I just wanted to scream at them and say, will you please listen to me? This is going to be it. He is going to die. And nobody would. And I get why. But it's I, I just hate that somebody couldn't say that sounds really scary. And, you know, maybe we can hope for the best, but plan for the worst, because that's what I had always learned from my mom. And um, so that that kind of really drove me batshit crazy, hearing people say, oh, you know, he got better before. And it's like, no, he's going to die this time. And I, I don't know why I know it so certainly. I'm not trying to be negative. This isn't a time for negative or positive. This is a time to be real, because we need to prepare as much as we can. And so I got all the kids there and I just started making all of the, making all of those calls and we started finding tumors. They were appearing, we were chasing them. Every hour more and more tumors would appear and, uh, and Chuck and I would find them and um, we just couldn't keep up with them. And 
That's when we called hospice and he was admitted. But we did have the opportunity to have some conversations, he and I between us. And one of the conversations we had was, I guess I told him, I, I guess I'm, I'm going to continue traveling. But I, I don't know, I just, I have nowhere else to go, so I'm going to continue traveling. And, uh, and so we started talking about the places that we had gone in our last four years together, because we hit all of the lower 48 states over those four years. And um, we started naming some of our favorite places. And I said, well, I'm going to go back to those places to scatter your cremains. And I said, I'm going to paint my car pink so that you can find me out on the road. And I remember him just looking at me and smiling and he, taking my hand and saying, I'll be looking for you. And uh, another thing in one of the other conversations we had, he said, um, black isn't your color. He said, don't mourn for me in black. He said, wear pink. <laughs> That's one of those um, laugh with tears in your eye stories. Where it's like, oh, I finally listened, but you're not here to, you know, tease me about it. And um, I thought this was just so cool because for me, as someone who lost a mom to breast cancer, pink is like a very hard color for me. I hate it. Like, I hate pink i hate pink in the month of october especially like there's so many it's funny how grief changes our response to what is normally neutral stimuli like colors or like certain types of flowers or like music or things that have never done anything to us <laughs> um all of a sudden become hostile and unwanted because of our grief and because of our pain um and I just so love that this was almost like the color pink was a contract that you agreed upon even before his death. My mom, Betty Catherine, she actually died of breast cancer also. And, um, and so I understand about the whole color pink. And it wasn't, I mean, I liked the color pink, but it was, wasn't my end-all be-all. And, and, but then after Chuck died, you know, with our conversations and having told him, okay, I'm going to paint my car pink so you can find me out on the road, I, I needed him to be able to find me because I didn't know where he was. I don't know what I believe about the afterlife. You know, it's all speculation anyways. So it was more incumbent upon him to find me. So if I did what I told him I would and paint my car pink, and if I wear pink, then he'll be more likely to find me. Now, when I say that, it's, it's kind of also like a, another layer of that is that um, it's, I, I'm kind of leaving markers for him. This was an interesting twist on just even all of the whole color thing. Uh, you know, I, I would meet people along the way and I've, I've had people come to me, especially early on, and bring me messages from Chuck who people who didn't know him, I wasn't around my car or trailer. They had no way of knowing my story. And I had a woman come to me very early on and tell me that um, Chuck wants me to tell you that he has left you markers along the way, to both physical and metaphysical. And he said, and he wants me to tell you to make sure to look for them. And so 
by my doing what I had told him I would do, it just, it made it more likely that I could leave markers for him as I looked for the markers that he had left for me. And those markers have come in the way of people often, most often. And people find me because of all of this pink. And then it started becoming kind of this bigger thing, like a, um, like this, and I started calling it my odyssey of love. And I've always been so aware that I'm only the vehicle for this. You know, it's, it's much bigger than I am. It's, it started out as me and Chuck, you know, a tribute to the love story that he and I shared. And that was, that was okay for a while, but then there was more started happening along the road, people being drawn to this shade of pink, you know, and everything being pink. And, and so I started realizing, you know, I need to expand this now. And so I started inviting people from my widow community to send me the names of their loved ones and I would write them on my rig. And then I realized, you know, this has never been just about me and Chuck. It's never been just about being widowed. It's about love and all of the love that Chuck left behind for me. That is the only thing that I know for sure is real anymore. And so I expanded it to just anybody and everybody I would meet. And so people from around the world, you know, they'd find my blog and my Facebook page and they would write to me and say, um, you know, a woman from New Zealand wrote to me and she said, my daughter always wanted to come to America and travel. And she just died last month. Could you add her name to your trailer? And I'll know that she's traveling with you. And so my trailer, which is all trimmed out in pink, is now covered in red um, auto paint pen of names and messages of love. So it's, it all started out as color and just about me and Chuck. And now it's all of this pink and, and all of this magic, really, because love is magic to me and magic is love. And it's just become this really big thing in this whole traveling tribute to love that is my odyssey of love. Because it, pink was just a color, but now it is a power statement for me. And the color that was created for me by this man named Anthony, I found in uh, Arizona right after Chuck died. He worked, he did, uh, he had his own garage and worked on cars and I, I had found him in the phone book and I told him our love story and I said, I need a color pink create, a shade of pink created for me. Can you do that? And he, I went and picked up the car, which had been silver. I picked up my car that he painted and it was this perfect shade of pink. And he handed me the paint can and he'd named the color. And the color of my car and my trailer is named Chuck's Watching Over Me Pink. And he said, that's to give you courage to return to the road on your own. Chuck will always be around you now. And, and that's how it is. So, but I've gotten questions. Oh, it's so Barbie pink. Oh, it's so pretty. It's so cute. And it's like, that's no fucking Barbie pink. <laughs> this is a strong, powerful pink. And on the front of my trailer, because it's a tab teardrop, so there used to be a big oval logo that said um, tab on it. And I had them remove that. And I had them put in big raspberry pink lettering, FWG, 
which is a term I came up with after Chuck died, to remind myself that I can do this and I will do this and I am doing it. And it means fucking warrior goddess. So when people say, oh, that's such a cute Barbie pink, I tell them that's not a Barbie pink. I said, that's a fucking warrior goddess pink. <laughs> and I said, I'm out here kicking ass in the name of love. And uh, But people have also said, oh, is that for breast cancer? And nothing against all of that, you know, breast cancer. But no, this is my shade of pink. This is FWG pink, and it is an honor of my husband, and it's an honor of love, and it's an honor of everybody out there who has love, who wants love, who's seeking love, who wishes for love, who misses love. That's what this kind of pink is. So it's about changing the meaning, isn't it? Because every color and every word has so many layers of meanings. I'm so excited because as you're talking about gathering all these stories of people f literally from around the world, stories of love, I got this visual of like when a leg is broken or an arm is broken, you go to the doctor and they put a cast on it. And as something is healing, people come in and visit you and like pop in along the way and they sign your cast. And I mm -hmm. feel, I, I'm getting chills. Um, saying this because it's like as you began to mend your own heart as you kind of put a cast over it it's like all these people are now coming to you to like sign it and wish you well but then the larger piece too of of healing is like there's a community around this and there is a it, it's a tribute it's actually it becomes its own object it's no longer just this is here helping me heal it's like this and all of these people and some magical component as well of good wishes and and love and yes. and just like I'm like you have your own pink like that is just so cool and here's uh and here's me telling you how much I hate pink which is not like that's an overstatement but it's it's also just you're so right that we we are allowed to determine what our grief means yes that's right we are the people. We absolutely are. Yep. And I do. I will not allow anybody to define this for me. I've had people tell me along the way, oh, you know, you're just, what a wonderful vacation you're on, your permanent vacation. It's like, so if this is your idea of a vacation with my husband's cremains and his fly riding shotgun with me, I don't ever want a vacation with you. This is not a vacation. <laughs> this is not fun. It's powerful. It's transformative. I'm giving words to it. You can, you know, all you people out there, call it whatever you want. I know what this is and I'm doing it my way and just don't get in my way. And also I had some woman early on when she kind of stepped back when I said she was asking what FWG means and I told her and she said, oh, well, maybe you should just, you know, that's kind of an offensive word and maybe you should just say friendly warrior goddess. And I looked at her, I said, do I look like a friendly warrior goddess? <laughs> I mean, I'm oozing love. I get that. I hug people. I support. I encourage. But this is fucking warrior goddess. I'm, I'm not out here having fun, sweetie. I'm out here transforming myself, my love story, my life, my history, my future, and trying to inspi inspiring almost by default. Like I didn't set out to inspire. This has been just really for me so that I can keep on going. But that's what it ends up doing. And so women kind of have gotten upset about that. 
sometimes that I say it so blatantly, whereas guys just, they just give me a high five or, you know, they hug me or they, um, you know, give me a fist bump because they're not offended by it. And I don't care anymore who's offended. I'm not using it to offend you. I'm using it to describe my journey and who I am. And I'm a fucking warrior goddess. So, you know, deal with it or don't, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter one way or the other. But we define this. We, we all define our lives. Nobody can do it for us. They try to, but, you know, we just need to be strong enough to tell them to buzz off. Can you say a couple of words maybe to people who have like a gut feeling of how they want to define their life, but are maybe afraid of what other people might think or afraid that they're not doing it correctly or like things of that nature, because you have such a strong voice. Like you're a woman on a mission. I knew that from the time your email landed in my inbox. I was like, she's got stuff to Mm -hmm. do. Um, and and you are just like this, this powerhouse of an entity. And there's such a, there's such a surety in the way that you speak about your grief and the way that you live your life. I'm wondering for people who are like, I feel like I'm on the edge of that, or I'm not sure if the words are right for it yet. If maybe you have some wisdom for them from just further up the road. So here's the thing. I started out not having a freaking clue what I was doing I didn't call it an odyssey. I, I, I started remembering conversations that Chuck and I had had and what, I, what we talked about. I, I, was, I was just as fearful as the next person. Seriously, I didn't have a clue. I don't necessarily have a clue now. Like, I don't plan. I think planning is naive because, you know, like, what's your five-year plan? I don't know. Maybe to, I might still be alive or I might drive off a bridge tomorrow. Who knows? So I don't plan. But the thing is, you take all of the, the indecisiveness. I don't care where you are in it. You take the indecisiveness, the uncertainty, the fear, the just everything, whatever it is you're feeling, and you just pack it all up in your backpack or your suitcase, and you go and you do it anyways. And if it's the wrong thing for you, so what? Go and do something else then. Trial and error, right? And if And people will judge you, and they will have things to say to you. And you just... My favorite saying is I tell them to fuck off with all the love in my heart. (laughs) Fuck off with love. Because I'm in my shoes or my boots. I'm paying my bills. It was my husband, my relationship. And you go do whatever you're going to do. This is what I'm doing. So I I stopped giving a fuck what anyone thought about it. You just have to go do it. You don't wait. You don't have to wait a year. You might want to. If you have a big house, sell it anyways. And if you've made the wrong financial decision, well, you know what? The economy is never a certain thing anyways. We all know that. I don't know. I I, I kind of now more subscribe to the um, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow. You may die because like literally Chuck was in the best of health in every way except for that damn cancer. And we had a life. And we had a future that we hoped for. And three weeks later, he was dead and sitting in a mound of ashes in an urn on my passenger seat. What do any of us have to really be afraid of, especially for those of us, whatever the relationship, who have confronted the death of a loved one? The worst has happened. What else is there to fear? So just be afraid, 
but go do it anyways. Because, and, and, and you just, you learn to ask for help because people might say yes. And my mom taught me that. She said, always give people the opportunity to say yes. So I do. I don't know everything. I don't, in fact, I freely own to the fact that I hardly know anything anymore. And I don't care about that either. I just ask for help when I need it. You just pack it all up. Everything that you might feel, whether they've just died, whether it's six months ago, if you want to go and do it, then you you just damn well go out and do it. And, you know, I, I'm going to have a, a foam finger made of, you know, flipping the bird so that I don't have to, you know, do the action of it. I can just hold the foam finger up for anybody who wants to have a judgment about me. And uh, so that's what I recommend to everybody. Just go do it. People don't like it. They're going to judge you. Hey, they're always going to. doesn't matter. Don't let it stop you. I just love your energy so much. I really do. Oh, thank you. I know I swear a lot. Chuck would even say, well, you know, that word kind of turns people off a lot. Well, he's not here anymore, so he doesn't get a say. I gave you the pink thing. Shut up already. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wearing pink, all right? Let me swear. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. People people will, you know, they're just funny about things. And um, this is, it truly is my life. And what I know is Chuck loved me more than anything, and I returned that love to him. And um, and I'm going to go out and live my life that I have to live without him in as colorful and as bold a way as possible, in as non-traditional a way as I possibly can. I'm going to do a I'm going to do a live feed on my Happily Homeless page, Facebook page of how to because his urn is just a little plastic black plastic box that um, he came in. And I had put pictures on it. I decoupaged it. It's just another art project to me. So I'm going to do a live feed of how to uh, how to design and decorate your own urn. And I'm going to use his urn oh, as an that's example. that's so cool. Because you know what? Also, let's not forget the shock value. You know, for those people who are judging you, go out of your way to shock them. That's what I say. People need to be shaken out of their complacency. Yeah. And there's something to be said about art in that too. If art's not shocking you... Uh, it's not really doing its job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I feel kind of the same way about grief. Yeah. Like if grief's not shocking you, it's not really doing its job uh, either. So that's a that's a really powerful thing to say. I'm wondering now, as we get close to the end of our time together, where people can find you and speak to you, maybe get their names added to your trailer or to your car. Um, also just where they can get in touch to share stories and to be, be with you as you continue on this journey. Yes, people can find me. I have a website that is, uh, the name of it is happily homeless is moonstruck.com. And there are links to my happily homeless Facebook page there and, uh, and anything, you know, the Twitter and everything else, all of which I'm still learning. Um, so, uh, on my website, they can kind of get the backstory of how this Odyssey of Love started and how it became the traveling tribute to love uh, and just all everything that goes along with it and pictures of my travels and all of that. Um, so and, and Happily Homeless Facebook page. And uh, what else is there? You can find me at an opera camp in the Ozark Mountains this summer, working at an opera camp. And... Uh, so if anybody's in Arkansas this summer, come look me up outside of Eureka Springs. 
So, um, and I have different projects going on. I'm going to be, I, I'm still finishing my book that I'm calling Love and Grief and the Fuck of Widowhood. And uh, that hopefully will be out next year. I'll be finished with it by then. I'm so thrilled. And I just want to uh, say out loud for all of our listeners as well, if life ever gives you a reason to swear, grief is like the number one reason you should ever be swearing. So like, come on, <laughs> let them drop. Yes, I know. <laughs> I loved that when I've heard, when I've heard the diff- different guests on your, uh, on your podcast, Shelby, that um, I thought, okay, yeah, this is another reason I want to be able to uh, have an interview with you because I heard people um, drop the F word and I thought, yeah, okay, this is cool. She's, she's strong enough to hear it. So this is cool. <laughs> At so. this point, I'm like, I've used it 10 billion thousand times in my entire life, both I as know, grief expressions yeah. and as joy expressions as well. But I'm like, it's a exactly. word we give it. It's all, it's like grief. You create your own meaning. So I, That's I love so it. True. And we are all in our own ways, fucking warrior goddesses on this odyssey of love. Yes. I am just so delighted to have hosted your presence on the show today. I thank you for reaching out listeners. If you want to tell your own story on the show, know that it is not beyond you. It's not just other podcasters and authors and like, you know, you don't have to have anything in your name to come on the show. You just have to have a lost story and just about all of us do. And I just, this was just so much fun. Oh, for me too, Shelby. And you know, we have to make our own opportunities, right? Ain't nobody going to do this life for me. And I believe in making my own opportunities and seizing them when I can. And I make a point when I, uh, like I, I still have my military ID privileges. And so I stay at a lot of military bases as I'm traveling at their, uh, what they call fam camps. And I started a couple years ago, uh, finding the website of a, the um, base that where I was going to be. And I would find their public affairs office and I would write to whatever contact I could find on there to let them know that I was who I was. I'd introduce myself, tell them about my odyssey of love. And uh, I'd tell them, you don't have to do anything with this information at all. But I am coming and my husband's cremains are with me. And I think it is so important for you to know that a veteran is passing through your base on his final travels. And so, and so I started getting interviewed by various uh, base newspapers and all that. I don't believe in sitting still for this. For all that I'm grieving and devastated, all of this, I am also out there kicking ass in the name of love for my husband, Chuck, and in the name of everybody out there who, who had love, still has love, and they're just looking for the possibilities from keeping your heart open. Oh my goodness, that's just perfect. I have no more to add. Thank you, Allison, so much for coming on, coming back today. Thank you, Shelby. This was, believe me, amazing to be able to do. Thank you. I'll be listening to you for many, many miles yet. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to longtime listener and fucking warrior goddess, Allison L. Miller, who joined us today to talk about the color pink and life on the road and her husband, Chuck. Allison came back by tuning in to her five senses and honestly, just going for it. You can find a link to Allison's Odyssey, writing, and really cool photos in the show notes. 
for grief support beyond this podcast, go to patreon.com slash Shelby Forsythia, where you can pledge for as little as $1 per month and receive instant access to a monthly grief support hangout with me. Thank you so much to Kate and Katie, who both became Patreon supporters this week. You can also apply for private grief coaching with me at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Mr. Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. <laughs>